Sweet. Um, so maybe, um, thanks for the introduction. And thanks to everyone at the um, IMA who's um, facilitated the show and today's gathering. Yeah. Um, I wanted to add to the acknowledgement earlier um, an acknowledgement of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the original owners of the land on which I work and live. Uh, and part of that is to acknowledge that the ramifications and realities of invasion are unresolved legally, morally and economically. Um, it always feels like a very lucky thing to do work in Brisbane. Um, it's a context that I love and love coming to. I was reminded of that last night when Dale very kindly invited me around to sit around a fire and eat some food at Yoronga uh, yeah. and caught up with quite a few of the Brisbane artists who are very important for me um, and I feel very lucky that I get to come up here reasonably often to hang out with people like Richard and, and Dale who's a very um, beloved peer and in a way, the origins of this gathering um, come from just informal conversations right. that we've had over, over many years. I think we met like maybe six years ago or so, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, we, I think we always find things to talk about and it somehow felt like there was a moment where it might be interesting to have a go at a formalised public conversation that would extend those uh, individual conversations that, that we have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I mean, I thought maybe a place to start that conversation, and I should, I guess, say, preface this by saying that the conversation will be informal. Like we've, we've, right. we're hoping that it will have the freshness of a conversation that's being discovered <laughs> before you and not rehearsed. Um, but it also means that we hope that you will interrupt with your own questions right. and thoughts as well, so that it quickly becomes a conversation between all of us. Um, but the thing I was going to start with, Dale, as a, as a question to you, is I was really struck last night when we were gathered at your studio and talking and eating together to see your studio space and right. to see actually something which I'd seen originally in that book um, I'd seen a photograph of it of those forms that you painted directly on your studio wall mm. which is a really extraordinary thing to see because it, it, it feels like you're seeing the trace of you working something out and discovering something and yep. I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how you first began to make paintings on the wall, what led you to that sure. and, and what was going on in that studio space? Yeah, um, there's a few different kind of points to, to, to start from in that, but essentially um, I've never really used journals, visual diaries or, or put, laid down process and thought process in, in paper except for when it was required at a university degree. Mm. And so then the next kind of natural format for that was to, to, to inhabit that, inhabit all of the thinking and all the working and the processing. So often the studio space is covered in the, 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 the thoughts, the thoughts, the images, the, the material. And then so the next translation was um, in 2014 when Yuani Scarce invited me to uh, participate in a show called Outlaws at Linden Contemporary Art Space in St Kilda. And in that process leading up to it, there was the opportunity to use uh, ochre on the gallery walls to turn the architecture upon itself, the, the historical architecture of the Linden Contemporary Art Space being a, 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 a Victorian mansion, mm. former Victorian mansion, and then being able to place the architecture in the same timeline as the, as the content of the work that I was looking to present. Um, I went through the process of talking with my family around, can we do this? Can I... 
can we have an idea about how I might be able to use what we inherit as a cultural form in making marks on the spaces that we inhabit uh, and then what do we do from there? So 2014 was the first time that happened and then into that space, the studio space, I mean now it was really a matter of it was a big empty uh, kind of void in many ways and um, I needed to know what things were going to be for projects upcoming, site-specific wall paintings, so uh, there was a chance to just with no consequence, be throwing things around on the wall to see what see what occurred. Yeah. And did that start off as stenciling? Because there's different, like in your studio, yeah. there are different kinds of marks on the wall, but most of them are stenciled marks. Yeah. Like, how how important is that as a process in? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still, I make stencil in repetition now, and I use the stencil as a method and the process of preparing the pigment and applying the pigment and composing the wall paintings uh, uh, are all continuums that I inherit through both my, my matrilineal and patrilineal grandfather from my, well, from my mum's side. And we know that that's our, that's our cultural form, we're stencil makers. We, we, make, we make rock art through stencil form more so than positive positive mark making, but also petroglyph through the different types of making uh, carvings in stone. And so, yeah, it's just a natural form to start to look at composition by, uh, in study form on the, on the studio space, throwing up um, random objects, which was literally that shovel that was lying on the studio floor, yeah. 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 So that, I'm sure lots of you know this book already and know this image, but this, is an Im this must be a, a couple, is it a year ago, that same space, is yeah. it, Dale? Yeah. yeah. Um, which, is it worth circulating that to sort of And they're also available out the front, I believe, as well. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, we were talking about this last night. I have very strong childhood memories of visiting Carnarvon and seeing right. this extraordinary stencil works there. And one of the things that's most uh, leaves right. impression is that that shape of the hand. Mm. Can you, I was curious about the different objects that you that you're stenciling sure. in that first kind of instance of, of articulating the studio. Sure. What, what are the what are the kinds of things that you're using to stencil? Yeah, um, and so I can start to answer that question by, in 2014, it was a matter of don't do anything that we know is a purposeful cultural form. It was, that was one of the sort of protocols and the strict adherences that, that I set on myself, but also we agreed as a family unit that was okay. Don't do anything that's recognisable. Uh, do something that you can claim it, you, you, that I can own as new, that doesn't belong to all of our other networks. And so from there, working consciously to not not be representative or derivative in in the in the the stencil that I was making in Linden using my hands just to make a negative make a positive stencil in in between my hands on the wall mm. rather than using an object on my hand or or, or something else um, now in your own, in the in the this studio the Yuronga studio was literally there was a plastic shovel left over from it being a, a an industrial space so that was the first thing available and that had a relationship to kind of my Dimensions of my hand and mm. the, the lovely boniness of my of my forearm mm. with the, the the neck of the handle. So um, that was a, a way for me to sort of get, do a substitute. But then there are also just random bits of pipe and things that allowed me to move beyond looking for the cultural cultural signifiers or markers, and then to start to know composition and the the rapid fire laying down of of, uh, of rep repetitive marks. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting about all that is I think the first time I ever did a studio visit to your studio, like years ago, yeah. 
um, it was it was a lot of sculptural things. Like it was mm. mainly sculptural mm. things. And I, um, I I think of those that stencil making is sort of a little bit an extension of a sculptural way of thinking in that it's very often objects. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can think about a shovel as an object of sculpting yeah. in a certain violent way or, you know, whether it's gardening or, or making railroads or, right. you know, whatever. Um, it has the sculptural action implied in it, but it's almost always a transition from a, th a three-dimensional object into a two-dimensional thing that happens in that wall painting, isn't it? Certainly, yeah. and that was part of the process that... Uh, myself and, and Hendrik Volkerts with the, the dialogue we had in the work for producing Documenta was, um, the work in Castle was around some of the forms that, I, that, that we know. There's, there's mm. a particular club that we know, but my family don't have a, a, a physical object to represent that form, but we know the form exists. We know its dimensions, and so from there there was a process of uh, talking about bringing from the two-dimensional negative stencil bringing back out into a, a three-dimensional form, mm. it's not a copy because if you teach me how to make something and I make it, I'm not copying yours, it's my original. Mm. So then making something from the original stencils, the historical stencils, this is an original new one, and then the potential for that to be laid on another stencil, then it's not necessarily a copy. Again, it's a, it's a new stencil of the new original. Mm. So there's a, there's a very, very wonderful cyclical kind of holistic Pro, uh, pro lineage, lineage of the form and the stencil, yeah. the object, yeah. One of the things that was, has been a lucky experience for me in the last couple of years is that um, Dale and I were uh, neighbours in yeah. an exhibition in Sydney at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, I had a, a work that isn't in this exhibition, a, a mosaic-based work that sort of connects to Palestine. Um, but the, the room adjacent to that room where Khaled and I were showing had an extraordinary wall painting by you which also had a vitrine and a kind of also a sort of sculpted text into the wall. Right. Um, which also I thought had a super interesting relationship to Yuani actually, on the subject of Yuani, who had that, um, many of you would have seen that, that extraordinary installation of glass yam forms. Right, yeah. Um, but that felt, that feels like it's a sort of uh, an important step or difference to what you're just describing because the objects that you were stenciling there were were inscribed with significance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, it's in that, whoever has that book, there is, I think there are a couple of very good pictures of that installation. Yeah. But what are the, there's something different going on there in that work, is there, in that way? Yeah, those forms, the, the, the three timber forms that were used in the stencil making, two identically sort of length pieces of rosewood timber, uh, which is an acacia, a wattle, a wattle, essentially, uh, and the longer length of the same plant from the same tree, a, a form that was carved into a fighting stick, digging stick. Mm. And we can always question the, which we prioritise there, the fighting or the digging, mm. whether it's for food and nourishment or whether it's for self-defence or weaponry. Um, but those forms were made new, with intent, new through all sorts of process around you know, sourcing the material and then who made them and why we made them as markers of um, significant uh, ancestors of mine, significant grandparents. Mm. So the two smaller forms represented male uh, fighting sticks and they were unfinished because the, we have very strong remembrances handed down to us of there being a pair of male fighting sticks used in a particular martial arts which was very much aware of pressure point and the kind of the meridian system to be able to uh, disarm you or to put you on the ground without actually hurting you just to say let's, you know... It's, it's in that kind of philosophy of around many martial arts. It's mm. not about actually trying to maim you. It's about, I know how to just put you down and we can finish this. Mm. So that, 
those forms were, uh, they live in our memory, but no one had actually seen them. One of, the, one of my grandfathers was very close to, to knowing what they, the finished form looked like, so they were unfinished as sculpted objects. And then the, the finished form, which the long digging stick was, um, now stands in many of the wall paintings as a marker of one big particular grandmother, but now even my sisters as well, as a marker of their potency and the reverence that we, that we uh, re remember, that we consciously remember when we think about that digging stick. So, um, yeah, they were, they were made new and there was also a, a text which was an oral history account typed up by one of my grandfathers who, that was his, uh, that was his pushback, that was his weapon, his fight back, to speak back against the abuse and to speak the truth and to have that documented. So those, those three sets of objects were essentially weapons or, or, or tools of against, against the oppression that they experienced. So then we translated them straight up into the wall. Mm. Yeah. Does that, does that go there? Yep. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, this morning, uh, Dale and I were at Quag actually just looking at a work which I'm sure you've all seen, um, the, that amazing um, wall composition with Ricketts Blue. Is that its, that's its proper title? Is that right? Yeah, wall composition yeah. in Records Blue, yeah. 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 Um, and one of the things that we talked about quite a bit when we were in front of that, as well as when we were talking about the Art Guide of New South Wales work, and that also I think has a relevance to the two wall drawings here, is the idea of making a, a wall drawing or a wall painting with someone else. And actually yeah. someone who helped both of us in the front row, right. Warrabah Weatherall, who has, did an amazing job working on this and also... Yeah, um, certainly crucial to yeah. the, the process at Quag, yeah. Uh, and that, that's, of course, something which is incredibly present at Carnarvon, the right. sense of it being the aggregation of many, many different people mm. and many different generations. Mm. And, the, um, and it's also part of the scale of making a work into architecture is that it's, it, invo it involves multiple people, um, yeah. as well as it kind of suggesting a gathering place, that, you know, as right. we're doing today. Um, but yeah, I'm curious about, in particular, that, that work at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, there's that... Uh, act of collectively making a wall painting yeah. is quite important, which is different, I guess, to what you began with, with the idea of the wall as like a sketchbook, which is right, more like an right. that's more like an individual artist thing, isn't it? Of sort of mapping things out for yourself. Yeah. But that thing of orchestrating a joint uh, labour on something, yeah. it, it also shifts the meaning of the work in important ways, I guess. Certainly. Yeah. And it means that the I mean, this is one way to look at it, but it means that the reason the work exists lives in multiple places in those who've contributed to making it, so, uh, and those who've in invested, invested even in that way, kind of putting themselves into the process. So, um, yeah, it's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a very solid thing that I don't make the wall paintings on my own. Mm. And then that allows them to not be singular. And also, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's literally hand, there's, there's, there's Warabar's hand involved and breath involved in the, in the painting at Quag, which, um, adds nuance and complexity and, and, uh, and supports the, what I was trying to achieve and what I've often tried to s achieve is the kind of the, the syncopation or the, the different rhythms that move across the space. Mm. So in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, there was my mum's brother, Uncle Milton, and, my mum, and his, son, his son, Will Lawton, and the three of us work together and we can identify whose marks were whose and we can also identify ourselves warming up in the process because there's no rehearsal there's no, um, yeah, there's, there's no warming up, there's, there's, no, there's no kind of rehearsal or, or, or um, study done in it. It's, it's a live process and we respond to, oh, that's a bit heavy or, oh, that was a bit thick. Mm. Let's, let's get this, let's, let's do the next one a little bit, 
thinner, a, th a thinner, a thinner mix, and uh, maybe put your chin up a bit higher next time because you're spraying down a bit. <laughs> so that then also builds into the kind of natural integrity of the of the, the rhythm and the syncopation. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that can't be orchestrated on my own. I can't do that on my own. It would be so disingenuous, and you'd be able to see it instantly. I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a there's a good video on the Quag website which shows you making the like literally doing that stenciling process. But is yeah. it useful just to describe how, how sure. you do it and also how this? It, it, as we were talking about the other day, it reminds me a bit of that of Yuani's work in the way it's very it involves right. the mouth in a really important way, right. breathing. Sweet. And then if I'm just going to jump and flip it back on you, then we'll talk about. <laughs> so then we can flip back to what it means to work together collaboratively on a space. So. Certainly the, the act of putting the earth pigments, the, the ochres, into the mouth uh, is a conscious process and it's done purposefully and it's done with intent and it's also done with, with, with kind of parameters to it. We, would probably, we do talk about them as protocols, but in a kind of a contemporary art context we could talk about it as parameters that mm. it's going to be done this way because mm. that's the way the, the, the intent is set for using that material but also using a, that process which is a significant process. It's not to be traded on or, or uh, taken lightly. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the pigment is prepared to a powder and then it's applied to the, it's taken in the mouth. And um, through the process of muscle memory and, and getting to know yourself as a, as a maker, um, then you start to understand it's literally maybe like a dancer or the pose or the poise or, or someone else who holds their body. You get to know what your, what your body requires for you to make that mark the way that you intend it to happen. So then it's sprayed, sprayed with the breath, which the breath, the breath is crucial, and that's where we come to sort of pushing, pushing the air or, or making, making the drawings with air. Mm -hmm. And then we were, we were talking on the way over about some of the, and so Ioanni Scarce's work in, in, as a glass blower, Ioanni's breath is captured in form in the, in the movement of her breath through the pipe and into the, the liquid form glass that then sets and kind of solidifies or captures her. Yeah, captures her breath, and at the same time, that the form itself suggests something which would be edible as well. Right, that would be ingested by the by the, right. by the mouth. So, yeah, yeah, that kind of yam shape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm certainly very conscious of that with your work at the Archive of New South Wales, because also the way that the work alludes to oral history, like this, right. this form of knowledge that also is connected to vocalising right. through the mouth. Right, which, yeah. and that comes back to the ability for me to look at the photos of the past wall paintings and go, ah, that was Jordan's, Jordan did that area, I can tell, that's his mark. Mm. Or, or that one's Will's over this side. Or, um, I don't know whose that was, let's, let's, whose, whose side was that? Because that's not mine, I know mm. it's not mine. Mm. So when oral history and the, the kind of corro cor corroborating processes of, of holding and continuing and upholding oral history, mm. that then the multiple perspectives are crucial in that as well. Mm. And similarly, we were talking about the different approaches in applying the pouncing in, in your wall painting process, Tom, around the different sympathy, sympathy mm. or, or kind of empathy, maybe, mm. applied to the material and the process. Mm. Uh, might you uh, extend on some of the, 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 the thought around how that, that pouncing hits and, and approaches the wall and working with other people and building some parameters around that? Yep. Um, I mean, probably um, it's been described before, so I won't do it in too long-winded a way, but the wall drawing that we went and had a look at uh, before is made through this technique of pouncing, which is a, a very, very old art technique for, that was used in Western art, um, and it's used in many different contexts. In the context of Western art, it's used mainly to transfer 
preparatory drawings to a surface where a fresco will be made. So classically, a drawing is made at one-to-one -one scale, and then the sheet of paper is perforated along the contours of the forms. And then the pouncing is where a cheesecloth full of ground-up charcoal is just sort of gently beaten against that perforated sheet of paper. And it there, it, the charcoal sort of finds its way through all those little perforations and leaves a dotted outline of the form that will then be made at fresco. So it's a very rudimentary way of doing something that you would do with a data projector or, or right. an overhead projector now to just transfer one image to another. Um, but in this case, it's used, I suppose, in a way that's not um, instrumentalised to simply transfer one drawing to another, to another surface, but rather the drawings that are shown along that long wall are used um, many, many times to pounce that surface and to create an altogether different kind of uh, imageless wall drawing, if you like, where that fig those figurative forms are very, very quickly dispelled uh, and another kind of form begins to emerge. Um, and it's in a way that's um, different to the collaborative process you described, but is nonetheless relies on others very strongly. And I can see there's at least one person who very skillfully contributed to that work at the back there. Uh, it's made in, because the, the, the sheets that are pounced are so big, it has to be done in pairs. And because the wall is so big, it was done in three pairs. So it's right. there, were, there were six of us working in there over many, many days. Um, and part of what's interesting about the process is that it's kind of very, very indeterminate. I mean, unlike the drawing, um, the, the cartoons or drawings along the wall, which are made solely by me and are made kind of carefully in that classic kind of figurative drawing mode, you can't really see what it is that you're pouncing because, of course, the sheet of paper covers the wall that you're pouncing on. Mm, and it's also right. very difficult because really you're not touching the wall directly. All you're doing is kind of uh, making charcoal dust um, move through the movements of air. So it's kind of really making a, a drawing with the movement of air. And you, if you look really closely at the, what the surface looks like, you get those little halos of dust around those little black dots, which is basically right. caused by the way that the whole process is just animating air. And yeah. you know, the dust burrows its way into those little perforations and finds its way onto the wall. But it's very, very uncontrolled and indeterminate, actually, as yeah. a process, partly because of how that is physically and you can't see it, but also because it's been carried out by three pairs of people um, right. simultaneously. Right. And there's something about that as a process which is an important counterpoint to that other kind of drawing which is a more sort of determined kind of drawing um, which, is, which is an important an important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's plenty of things that are caught in there but, but particularly around the, the kind of the halo or the, the, the indeterminate nature of the, the edge, mm. the edge of the mark that's made and they're really similar in the way that the breath when blowing ochre or using an atomizer for applying a Reckitt's Blue, which I should say, I don't put the Reckitt's Blue into my mouth. There's an atomizer used, like a Heidelberg atomizer that draws it up on air vac vacuum and atomizes it that way. Um, but that, uh, I, can't, I can't control that. I can have a fair idea of what density I might achieve, but uh, there's, not, there's no ability to achieve a, a solid line there as well. So there's a very similar process in surrendering to the the material and being sensitive to how that functions. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, when I was just this morning when we were looking at that wall painting at um, Quag, it was interesting just looking up close at what it is. It's in these tiny specks. Right. Um, and it makes that kind of fuzz. At the, of course, it does make the outline of the, sh you know, the end of the shovel, but it's not actually a line there. It's like yeah. a, it's, yeah. and that's part of what it does optically. But it's, to me, that's also interesting the way that it's, it's constituted by, by dots. Yeah. And that, for me, is an important thing about that work, that it, you know, the basic procedure of a, of a perforated cartoon is that it divides a line into points. 
Right. And there's a, a certain point in that project I was thinking a lot about Flinders and Bungary, and you know this this amazing story of the Flinders, you know, being the the one who's famous for circumnavigating Australia and making that continuous line of the continent. And you know, in Victoria, there are lots of little monuments where. Flinders came ashore and navigated with Aboriginal people. Right. And they, the monuments never mentioned Bungary, who of course was the person who, who mediated all of that and did all that incredible work in these different points of this landmass. Yeah. And there's a certain, that thinking of that, that famous line, you know, that, that Flinders drew, but, but trying to think of it as not in an alternative way as points, and points where Bungary was a, a critical protagonist and someone who kind of witnessed this extraordinary array of historical unfoldings mm. at that time is a little bit was in my head with the logic of this thing which dissolves lines into points. Right. And it then establishes a different kind of presence because it, it becomes more, yeah, it becomes a field. Right. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's certainly something which is, it was that distinction between, you know, a field of points, um, which is mostly what the wall stencils are. Yeah. But then these moments where it, it goes into a, a line, which are very significant in that wall painting. Yeah, yeah, and the... And the the, the field that the kind of the accumulation the accumulation in the overlay achieves a, achieves a field that like it's the accumulation in the voices that individual the individual action the individual process uh, accumulates to, to, to sort of build more literally to, to, to build the composition mm. in both processes um, but certainly uh, there'd be a difference in um, there's a chorus or what do we call that like a, a, um, a, a Working towards a harmony or working towards a, there's no opposition. I don't know that in, there's any opposition in the overlay of forms in making a stencil wall painting or the other kind of composite wall paintings with the petri the carving, the positive mark making, and the stenciling. Mm. There's not any pushing against anything else that was already there, or that might come either. There's it's everything's with a sort of a sensitive or a inclusive maybe. I don't know, mm. but definitely there's there's no kind of reaction. There's no reaction that takes place. They all kind of slot in, but in the overlay of the, the other perspectives, particularly around the two different colonial perspectives, one being First Nations colonial, one being settler colonial, mm. the overlay blurs, blurs that line, that, mm. the line in the, in the narrative. Yeah. In, in that, um, that distinction that you just drew, the material that you use is very important. With that, that record's blue, which is very, very, I mean, it's optically amazing, but it's also very Profoundly historically encoded right. as a as a material, yeah, um, right. and that it, that attention to the matter of what you make a wall painting, a wall drawing with is something yeah. we've talked about quite a lot. Yeah, but for those who don't know that story of the Ricketts Blue, is it worth just describing what its historical uses? Sure. Yeah. Oh, and again, there's so many to that. Um, and that's, well, that's a really great thing is that Ricketts Blue doesn't belong to the, the process now of this wall painting and Records Blue belongs to actually to many families mm. and Records Blue belongs to many colonies actually and many frontier colony experiences and histories and particularly in making some paintings at home on my hands and knees in the shed at home some neighbours popped in who were lovely and chatting we got talking in the, and oh that's Records Blue both both neighbours in the in the partnership had a, an ownership of the history of the Records Blue in Queensland, and particularly in the same region where um, my, my, my grandparents' territories mm. are. So Records Blue came in, well left, and we were talking about this yesterday, that there's a number of Records Blue included objects in the Australian Museum in Sydney. And so 
and it's kind of the, the departure point for Ricketts Blue in the colonial frontier wave moving up through what is now Queensland. It could actually be described as from Sydney, Brisbane next, and then moving out probably through Ipswich and Toowoomba, and then moving up and out. So where has it come from? Uh, there's, a, there's a number of different places that could be stated. But then as the wave, if Brisbane is here, the wave that moved up and out, and I, I believe Michael Ed has said somewhere in around 1843, if I'm, if I'm close, to, close to that mark, around the movement of the frontier moving out of Brisbane and up and away, uh, Ricketts Blue came as a, a gorgeous pigment that is in a dry powdered form which can be processed and identified and even, what's that word, like um, recognised, mm -hmm. even recognised as something that is familiar, even though it's totally unfamiliar, used as a laundry whitener. So a slight blue dye applied over textile to lighten the, the tone of the blue, the hue, the hue of the blue, so that it's not a sort of a, a yellowy, browny white. Sorry, it, it comes up to a blue white, which appears to be cleaner. So there's the, the optical whitener. Uh, but of course, it was a gorgeous blue that that particular type of blue hadn't existed in natural pigment and the ability to use that in, in, in material making mm. as the frontier met. But then, uh, there was the opportunity for that, that Ricketts Blue to come in as a gorgeous new material. And then in the same territory, and, it, and Bruce McLean has introduced me from the Queensland Art Gallery to the 12 or so historical forms made from acacia timber and their throwing sticks, described as throwing sticks, which are in the Queensland Art Gallery collection. And they have Ricketts Blue and a number of pigments, uh, co commercial paints applied to them. And they're gorgeous, beautiful things collected around 1890, circa 1890, I understand. So here comes this new ability to express beauty and, and, and another kind of uh, material in form. But then on the same territories, the same pigment was, was used against the women in my family and the mm. women across the colonial frontier, mm. I understand, the British colonial frontier particularly, that. Um, um, the, the indentured servitude and the domestic work performed by women uh, who are under government and, uh, and, and imperial control. Records blew the same pigment, stained the hand and dyed the hands of particularly my mother, my grandmother and my great-grandmother, and then all the other women beside them and above them mm. uh, from about uh, 1927. Mm. Well, bef before that, but Warabinda as an Aboriginal mission established by the Queensland government was set up in 1927. Mm. So then the Ricketts Blue, my mum has an interaction with that, actually using it for its original purpose as a laundry whitener, uh, as a young person washing other people's laundry. Mm. And then I have the privilege of celebrating it as a gorgeous blue, <laughs> again, in a way which is fraught with, with both, all of those memories, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, while we're talking, I'll just reiterate the invitation for anyone to yeah, please. chime in with questions or comments at any point. Hi, Tom. I was wondering about this dialectic between um, old techniques that you were mentioning wanting to make anew and new, like with the okra and with the stenciling and with the rock image used very, very differently, and also the oral history, the past and the future, and um, whether you see that as a dialogue about the invaders or colonial or First Nations perspective. Do you see it as a, 
as a digging stick art in general, your art in general, do you want it to be a dialogue or do you want it to kind of be a, maybe not a protest but a, a strong fight or fighting discourse? Or is that too simple to say whether your art is going to be um, yeah. angry and questioning about colonialism? Or is it going to be a, a, like a dialogue of acknowledging the beauty of First Nation history and perspective, um, if that makes sense? I hope it does. Maybe we should both have a go at that, but I'd, I'd say answer D, all of the above. Um, uh, but particularly um, in my lifetime as an expression of a cultural continuum, which now includes all sorts of uh, complexities and nuances, based around where I stand or even sit in this chair or when, I'm, when I interact as, as an artist, yeah. So um, it's, it's an opportunity to continue and continue with knowing everything that it includes, yeah. So where do you reckon, Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question to answer because there's, be, um, there's a lot to be angry about in the right. history that these, um, that these different works attempt to engage in different ways and, of course, also from different speaking positions because I'm... I'm of, of Irish origin and from the settler culture. Um, I guess for me, the way that I would begin to answer that is that, and that, that work in a way began or came to centre around a very particular place in Australia, which is Sydney Harbour, actually, like thinking about Sydney Harbour as a space. And I partly came to that through a set of objects that I was very lucky to see in Vienna, which then precipitated a very rich engagement with um, a remarkable woman called Auntie Julie Freeman who is down in Rec, in Rec Bay in New South Wales. And one of the things that I find very striking about Sydney Harbour as a space is the way that it, on the one hand, is, is just breathtakingly beautiful as a space, but it also has this shadow of a historical process that began there, like that, 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 uh, that the invasion unfolded from that space. And when you're there attempting to find an image for that is very, very difficult. It's a, because it's a vast and um, painful and, and multifaceted historical process. So how it is that as artists, if, if you're interested in pictures and picture making, how you begin to grapple with that and its vastness and its complexity is sort of what that work is in a beginning of an attempt to do, to think of what it is to make pictures in the face of that history. And it's not something that I think can be tackled directly. There's no picture that you can't, that would just simply show it. And I guess the, the to go back to the beginning of your question, the reason why that very old process of pouncing is for me interesting and useful is that it's of course a, it's a process in the service of picture making. But um, when you pounce a drawing, you also obliterate the drawing. Right. But, um, and you produce this other thing behind, which is the that picture um, dissembled into points, which don't, doesn't yield the picture so directly and it yields also a sense of the body which has been pulverised into a kind of weather. And that, um, yeah, that, so that, those processes for me are useful because they, def they make for much more oblique kinds of pictures and they also, I hope, they prompt imaginative work, which I think is ultimately the, one of the critical dimensions of all this is that it, it requires very complex imaginative work to, under to understand 
the history and also the realities that the histories leave us with, mm. Um, mm. like imaginative work towards justice. Mm. So that that sounds very hubristic to then end in that, on that note. But that that way that artworks are uniquely able to prompt our remarkable imaginative faculties as humans um, is is probably um, the the critical thing for me in, in answering that that question. Yeah, and if I could just quickly catch something there is that. Uh, when you were just, uh, in the early part, you were talking about Sydney and the, the, the shadow of the process that was about to begin. Mm. I heard an echo of the word shadow, and I heard an echo of one of your other works, actually, Tom, uh, the work with, around evening shadows, mm. backwater of the Murray, backwaters mm. of the Murray. And I, I, I thought about the space in the Art Gallery of South Australia, then, with that had all of the other mm, amateur. Would you say is that how it's yeah. framed safely? The amateur reproductions of the of the same painting that. There again is the, all the other multiple voices on the wall in the space. Um, again, in that colonial architecture, very colonial architecture. What are they, is the elder wing? They call that the elder wing. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is actually, I think, the project that I was working on when we first met, which was an attempt to assemble um, all of these non-professional copies of what is actually the very first painting that the Art of South Australia acquired, which is by a sort of little-known colonial painter called H. J. Johnson. And it, it, the title of the work is Evening Shadows, and it, it, it's a very classical depiction of um, a twilight on the Murray River. And it has right. a kind of allegorical um, Aboriginal figure, a woman who's crossing the river towards the, the kind of darker part of the picture. and has this kind of whole colonial allegory around, you know, an inevitable disappearance thing. Right, and it's right. a very, very popular painting. I mean, it's been, it's mm. the most reproduced painting in the Archives of Australia, and it's also been very extensively copied. And it yeah. was a very odd thing to see what all those paintings did when they were assembled together, because it, it, yeah. it is, um, it, it's part of just the, the sheer strangeness of all of the amateur attempts to replicate the original and all of the plastic frames that sort of dissemble the authority of the classical architecture of the right. Elderwing. Yeah. Um, but it is that thing, of the, you used the word chorus before, and there is something around that which I, hopefully another narrative begins to take shape beyond what the picture ostensibly shows through that repetition. Right, right. Yeah, that repetition, like, I think enables something else to happen. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. maybe even blurring, blurring the edges again, mm. blurring the edges of the original intent for the, the original painting mm. yeah. in that it's inhabited in the redoing and the, re, the remaking mm. or the new making, the copy again. It's kind of that in and out again with the mm. copy, but, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting, just because repetition is something that we have spoken about, and I'll, I think you put your hand up, Aileen, so I'm tickled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll finish this thought. Um, but um, yeah, repetition is something that we have talked about quite a bit, and of course, but, but stenciling is, a, is an amazing pre-photographic right. form of reproduction. I mean, right. it enables a re repetition of something. Yeah. And, um, but there's also that funny thing of it, that, of course, the stencil presents the absence of something, because when you stencil mm. it, you then pull away the object. So it's a repeated... There's, mm. a, the ob there's an insistence on that thing it's stenciled as well as that yeah. you don't see it directly. Yeah. Um, and that yeah, repetition, of course, I mean, there's of course a very long tradition of repetition in all kinds of art making, yeah. but yeah. repetition is a really important part of those wall paintings, isn't it? Because it, I mean, it rhythmically makes something animated yeah. in, in the work and it also insists on certain things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even the, the joy in reducing down the, 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 the object that gets stenciled, the, the Queensland Art Gallery wall painting is the one that has, it's, oh, it has 
the, the shovel, but also a small piece of Australis reed, mm. uh, a, native, a native Australian water reed. And they, the, that's the, the smallest number of objects that have been stenciled in a mm. wall painting, but also the least kind of identifiable to, to um, and what's that word? What's it? Stereotypical or anticipated, anticipated cultural forms. Mm. Of course, they're cultural forms because I propose them. Mm. Of course, they are because we made them as Aboriginal males, mm. Aboriginal people making them. But uh, they're not quite as predictable. Um, but yeah, so that one with the with the shovel and the and the, the piece of water reed, reducing it down to just the shovel allows then the all of the other plays to start to occur. Mm. Whereas in the past, making wall paintings with multiple colours and multiple. For, um, original forms or stent, uh, uh, templates to, to, to lay the forms down, they, um, they complicate in a way that um, head towards kind of muralistic, muralistic kind of uh, collaborative process rather than sort of the harmony of a, of a wall painting. I, I kind of distinguish the two, I think, in my thinking. Yep. Yeah. Um, Dale had taken us through this history of material culture that is embedded in the Ricketts Blue and we know is embedded right. in your use of ochre. Um, and while the current exhibition is definitely misleading because it makes it seem like um, mm. Tom only works in charcoal and pencil, um, I wondered if it wasn't worth hearing um, a bit about your material choices as a kind of parallel. Mm. Uh, no, I mean, charcoal, you're, you're right, um, even though I do do things that are other than charcoal and pencil <laughs> uh, and occasionally even involve colour, um, unlike this show, it, the charcoal is very important as a, uh, as a medium and it's, it, it's partly that, um, I mean, there's, a, there's an appeal simply in the kinds of surfaces that it produces um, and a very particular kind of depth that, that charcoal produces because it's such a matte material. And its fragility, the, the, I mean, particularly in that uh, work in there, that it's something which is just ready to fall off the wall. Um, but it's, for me, one of the most important things about charcoal is the way, and I talked about this a little bit at the opening talk, so forgive me if you've already heard this already, is the way that charcoal um, disaggregates as you use it. So it's very different to paint that way, which is a consolidated gel. And, you know, when you paint over a surface, that um, this, th that matter stays together and it covers what's beneath it, whereas the nature of charcoal is that the thing comes apart at the same time that the drawing you're making assembles itself. And that funny um, contradictory process of the thing disaggregating at the same time that the picture is aggregating right. is a very appealing thing about it as a, as a process. And um, part of the appeal of the, that way of making a wall drawing is that it sort of seems to almost... Um, thematise that process itself because of the way that the thing just yields points. I mean, actually, of course, the, the, the particles of charcoal are way smaller than the dots on that wall, but the, that makes a picture of that process of something become turning into particles. Um, and that's... I mean, I find that interesting as a way to make pictures and also for what it says about picture-making, but it also ha has interesting implications for storytelling and history-making as well, like the way that this effort to constitute things and draw them together and assemble them is constantly accompanied by a process of the thing coming apart. Um, and I hope it's the same in the encounter with it, that you know, when you're in that room, you work towards finding and fashioning forms out of that thing, but it's sort of, 
you never arrive at a, a one coherent image. It's, it should resist any, any moment where the thing simply becomes a picture of, of something. Um, I mean, I guess I, I've never, I never stopped thinking about the fact that charcoal is, of course, also a burnt matter. And right. it's, you know, I mean, it's, there's a way to understand all of those little dots as being dots of expired light, which is, you know, what, what charcoal is. And I hope that one of the things that triggers is the idea of, you know, the kind of view that you often have from an aeroplane of, um, of points on a landscape beneath you. And that was sort of consolidated in my mind by one of those conversations with um, Andy Julie, who painted a very beautiful picture of, of Sydney Harbour before the invasion and all those dots of light of women fishing on boats with a fire on the boat and what the harbour might have looked like from the sky at that point, as well as that kind of celestial mm. thing of just what happens when you look in the sky in a very clear, dark place, you know, like central Australia. Um, but of course it's always inverted, uh, you know, because they're, they're black, little black dots of light and they have those little halos, a bit like a, a halo of light, but they're of course um, expired light and very black. And for me that's something that I, um, I was thinking about again this morning, thinking about that wreck, it's blue, because there's a funny thing that of course we're both working on white walls. That's like right, the, right. that's how you, it's a classical art thing to do, yeah? Right. To, um, so the idea of working on something which is a whitener, but which actually then produces an incursion into the white wall in like the yeah, wreck, right. it's blue is kind of an interesting thing. And it's certainly the, I mean, those who were present in this space when that wall drawing was made will know the incredible plastic palaver that was necessary to isolate the charcoal dust from going everywhere um, because it's so uh, invasive in the, and also in a white space. It's, it very quickly puts black marks on the white mm. walls. But um, yeah, that, those multiple meanings of charcoal as a material is a very, a very important for me. Mm. Yeah. And it's an, and it's part of also, of course, why it produces very particular black surfaces because it's so, it's a, you know, the, the black in a drawing like that, it's all little tiny particles of black and if you, that's why I don't use fixative because, <laughs> of course, if you fix it, it, it makes that into a slick and that's what then reduces the way that the particles optically make it into such a, a kind of a deep space to look into. So then potentially even the, the works on paper are transit, transient or yeah. impermanent, yeah. Like, like a wall painting yeah. maybe. Yeah, I mean, don't say that to the NGV who loaned the big, no, big no, drawing. No, like, That's their worst nightmare. Yeah. It's just an ephemeral work, actually. And half, half of the drawings come off onto the wall, onto the floor. Um, but it's true there. I mean, there, there is a... Um, that kind of charcoal, is, it has a, a binder in it, which is partly right, why right. when we made the pounce thing and you get covered in that um, charcoal dust, your hair feels like you've been hairsprayed because it, it right. makes it, it, and that is what means it does stick to the paper. So it should last for a long time. But, ah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that compressed? Is that a compressed charcoal? Yeah. So it's okay. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. right. it, it's so it's a, it means it's a blacker black, and also that it, it adheres to the wall. Because if you did it with a willow, I don't think it would. It would just fall off the wall. Right, and yeah. then you get natural kind of uh, seams or veins of of the browns and other tones that come through when you have willow charcoal as well. That yeah another unpredictable but the density there the density in that compression which is very similar well Rackets Blue is compressed That's, yeah. into those little cubes as well but yeah because they're both concentrates right in that way aren't they I mean because the, the Rackets Blue is, a con is it like a really concentrated powder and it's the same with compressed the, yeah. the charcoal and compressed charcoal it's really a, like a concentrated matter right yeah. and that density in the the density in the matte in the matte colour mm. as an end result yeah yeah mm. um, yeah there's yeah. Um, in thinking about the way that you both reach back into your individual art histories or, or, or historical reference, 
Um, Tom, I was I, I was just wanted to draw a comparison. Tom, you know, the, the pouncing technique is a medieval one, isn't it? And it strikes me thinking about Dale's work, that ultramarine, you know, the kind of origin of Ricketts blue, that blue right. colour, is also a very kind of potent colour in terms of a medieval kind of context. Is that something that you've thought about, Dale? And then I started thinking about the documenter work in which you... Um, added gold leaf to right. that particular um, wall drawing and, and maybe you could yeah. talk about that content or, or perhaps you reject that that that, that origin of or, or to think about that kind of lineage back to sure and then I was thinking you know well ultramarine of course it's associated with with Lapis. the Virgin Mary and right. and well femininity mm. matrilineal lineages and things like that I just yeah uh, Oh, yeah. Is that a conscious or is that an interesting <laughs> thing to think about? I, I don't, didn't have a. <laughs> then you've got Christianity, you right, know, and, right, and right, right. Image making, um, or, or the understanding of even art as yeah. as art. Yeah. Um, I wondered whether either yeah. of you had something to offer in terms of that. No, I wish I, I could have been scribbling some notes. There's, uh, a few hours in that one. Thanks, thanks, Angela. Um, um, sometimes I forget, and actually, when I took the records blue to Europe, I wasn't even really conscious. I was, I was always seeing it as a blue ochre, a blue ochre that you don't put in your mouth. And, but then, of course, all of the European context that was raised around that particular type of blue coming from the lapis lazuli, there's different ways of print, but lapis lazuli, the blue that was used in Renaissance painting as a commodity, which was the commodity controlled, as I understand, by religious structures being the Vatican, would I be correct? There were religious structures controlling the supply and ramping the value of the commodity being the blue. These are the kind of things that I, I didn't even really consider so much. It was a, it was a blue ochre that you don't put in your mouth. Um, uh, uh, but certainly this was the, the same history here on on, on Gungalee territories in central Queensland, or what is now central Queensland, that the Ricketts Blue was a tradable commodity. And the Ricketts Blue was a, a commodity in um, being able to give and receive. And certainly um, those, those Ricketts Blue, it's been described in a really beautiful way, but they would, those Ricketts Blue clubs, the clubs that didn't contain those, would have been desirable objects in themselves then because they contain this other blue. So there's all of these many kind of dimensions to how that functions, but yeah, I, I, when uh, I, I, I don't try to resist that, and particularly if the wall paintings are responsive to the place that I'm in, and hopefully the surrounds, which include the people and maybe the culture that I'm that I'm making the wall paintings in. Um, yeah, definitely, that's when I went. Okay, well, we're going to have some gold leaf in this one for the first time, and I kind of rolled with that in the moment, in drawing in that that history into the into the work and not trying to push it back, which again kind of maybe kind of confirms what I, was, what I was hoping to convey before about there's no kind of resistance against different elements in the wall paintings that they actually all sit together. And particularly when you take a photograph of them, they compress sometimes, they compress to be a flat plane. But definitely the gold leaf and the, and the, the other histories of that type of blue, um, they didn't pose any challenges for me. In a way I was kind of like, well, thank you, I'll take that. And uh, we can use that the same way I've used in the original wall painting, the architecture, the colonial architecture on itself. That's not really what I was trying to do with the, with the gold leaf. I was kind of going, yeah, well, we can do gold too. 
So, yeah, yeah. What about you, Tom? What, uh, uh, those kind of. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, great. <laughs> but transcendental is a good... Great. Good catch. Yeah, good catch. Yeah. I mean, that for me, that, that uh, link to Klein is quite strong. And also the idea of it being a kind of after-image. Is, is so, which also would link to Klein, like somehow this idea of something which has been made an impression upon the wall in the way that is very, you know, is strong in his in his work. Mm. Oh. Mm. I think there's something else there too around. <coughs> which one? Sorry. Well, you're not dragging the <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Uh, maybe maybe there might be some work to come that actually <laughs> dances dances with some of that. Uh, may, maybe in June actually. But um, the, the the kind of the transcendental and the uh, you said something there, Tom, which made me think of the aura mm. and the way that that record's blue. When I've laid it down in a solid um, field of multiple coats sprayed by the breath onto glass, mm. the blue then off puts an aura. Uh, like a blue hue or blue colour cast across the surfaces, particularly the white walls that they might be hung on or lent against. Mm. So that's kind of kind of cool in itself. Which are things that we, we learnt. I say we that we, we learnt them in the process of installing mm. installing those works. So the transcendental, yeah, we should stitch some of that together. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you reckon? Hello. Um, I, I, I was trying to take in a lot and I, was, I, I think I might just come out in <laughs> gobbledygook, but um, I, um, you know, the, I, I like the similarities between both of your practices where um, there's a form of mapping um, and all these overtones of, of um, you know, you were talking about syncopation um, right. and um, choruses and um, I think that's something that really identifies within First Nations knowledges right. and that um, mnemonic, um, you know, repetition that leads to broader knowledge systems and, mm. and you know, vice versa. Um, but as, as um, I guess, these sort of contemporary discourses around um, mapping borders, um, building your work like you've said before and, and you know contributing to that indigenous art canon um, but um, just just curious how um, how these sort of discourses contribute to um, I guess contemporary identity nationhood right. um, and even just um, on an individual or collective sort of level mm. where um, yeah, I don't know. There's just something in it that I, I just can't grab. But um, yeah, yeah. If, if you guys could talk to that, that'd be cool. 
What do you reckon? You go, Tom? Um, can I be sneaky and answer it by talking about something I like in Dale's work? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then maybe I can answer it about that um, wall drawing. Um, I mean, we were actually coming here, we were talking a bit about this question of, of mapping and how, mm -hmm. on the one hand, there's a very strong sense of the after image of bodies or a body in, for example, in that quag work. But there's also a cartographic thing about, mm. I mean, literally in, in the presence of those gouged out river shapes, yeah. but also in the implication of, an, of another um, a, a legibility that might be in the landscape. And we, that's something that we right. talk about quite a bit, actually, right, this right. question of, of reading. Yeah, like written, not just in a classical cartographic sense, but this thing that feels so urgent and important in Australia and so much part of the amnesia and the culture is how um, the inability of the dominant settler culture to, to read the landscape in important and diverse ways and urgent ways. Um, and I, one of the things that Dale's work actually reminded me of very strongly is um, one of my very favourite 19th century artists, who's Barak, the, the great Wurundjeri artist and Narangita and political leader, who actually appears in all three of these works as an attempt to kind of make a homage to him. And I love that way that in the Barak drawing, there's a visual rhythm which remembers uh, an acoustic or oral rhythm, which in turn is a mnemonic, as you said, like that, all of that, that singing and dancing that was a way to relate stories and to convey stories, which is then in turn conveyed visually by these extraordinary visual rhythms that he makes those pictures with, um, that of course implies cartographies, I think in, in important ways. Mm. Um, and there's something of that in that, the syncopation is the word right. you often use, that for me is very ev evocative of sound right. and the movement of a body, like a Moybridge thing as well, like a kind of, um, yeah. which I think is also how it's different. You've made that distinction between murals and what you do, and I think that's where it's not, it's not mural, it's something different to murals. It's like registers the movement of a body on a surface yeah. in a way that a yeah. classical mural wouldn't, wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, but just to briefly then respond to your question in terms of that work in there, I mean, it's, because it's a very indeterminate process, there's a, um, you can sort of start anywhere. The way that that drawing procedurally works is that for the first two or three days, there's just an effort to loosely uh, establish densities that correspond to land masses on, in a map of the world. And then at a certain point, it, because it's very imprecise and it's constantly producing forms you don't expect, then the drawing just becomes, has its own logic and it just it follows that. And then that those densities of continents sort of become a, like a distant residue of the process. Right. But I hope that it does still have the beginning of a suggestion of a cart cartography, like a windswept one or a meteorologically <laughs> kind of messy one. Um, but a the idea that it's a cartography made up of points is, a, is, an, is an important thing, like that it, would be, it might begin to precipitate a way of thinking of um, how you would draw the world that we live in not through lines and the, the, the classical mm. means of cartography. Mm. So it, it does lurk in there in some way. Um, and maybe just to finish off before I hand the uh, baton to you, um, I, do, I, I was lucky last week to be in Tassie and I was spent a lot of time with this uh, fantastic thinker, Greg Lehman, who's an, just an amazing Tasmanian Aboriginal writer and polymath and who's actually the person that I'm in dialogue with in that work at the very, very end. And he's just a great person to walk around places with. And he's brilliant at reading 
the landscape, like both in the sense of understanding how a landscape might have been used both in the, after the invasion but also before the invasion, but also trying to prompting you to think about what the landscape is asking of us when we're in it, like another kind of profound legibility. Um, and I mean, he, even landscape is, pro is the wrong word. I mean, he says we, we, just, we need to think of another word, right. it's not landscape. But there's something about that which is a, like a really different kind of cartography that feels like is a super important thing in Australia at the moment because it's about uh, yeah, this question of how to induce other kinds of legibility in the landscape. And that's, that, I mean, that I'm sure will happen in lots of different disciplines from you know, what happens in primary schools to mm. geographers and, but also I think artists are probably, um, it's an important thing for us to try to grapple with too. Yeah. Oh, a number of things in there is um, uh, uh, maybe another, another way of describing putting language to place rather than landscape might be environment. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and cause, because certainly that's how I've always, well, that's how for some time I've viewed a contemporary white walled gallery space or a designated art space as an environment and reading it actually coming back to an original conversation that um, Warabar and Marinda and I had by the, the river at New Farm was, was around reading the exhibition space in relation to landscape or environment, the, the environment that we're familiar with. And so as soon as I walk into Tom's wall painting around, wall drawing around the side here, I see stone walls actually. So it's not so much the cartography that I'm seeing from above, the cartography of the planet and the continents, but I see the surface of a sandstone, potentially a sandstone uh, environment. Um, but also then in there, uh, was it legibility? And, and visual literacy is something that I'm really interested in uh, spending a lot, some, a lot more time talking around, the, establishing visual literacy of the, the multiple cultural inheritances and continuums that exist on this continent and being able to see and know and hopefully have some familiarity with the with, through visual literacy its its origins where it's from and maybe who's making and what time period these kinds of things uh, visual literacy and in terms of reading wall paintings in terms of reading text reading uh, first nations uh, expressions and being able to access Location through seeing stylistic choices and um, other other kind of formal formal readings from maybe an art sense. The visual literacy to know that if you see a particular colour, sometimes you can go, "That's actually rock art from this place." Or if you see a particular type of petroglyph, there's a potential to go, "Oh, that's definitely South Coast New South Wales petroglyph." Mm. I just even if it's a cropped image, you go, ah, that's from there. Mm. Or a particular type of colour in ochre, ah, that's from over here. So. Um, one of the, the hopes around, around making more paintings as a continuum and, and embedding this practice in a, in a gallery context with my family, owning it as we all do it together, um, is that others, others start to identify similarities and be able to trace those lineages in canon as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Around kind of landscape and cartography, these, these thinkings and borders and territories you touched on before, Warabar, yeah. Mm -hmm. How are we doing for time? Time for one more question. Sweet. <laughs> Does this actually work this time? Yeah, sorry. So just to return to that um, 
that thing that you're saying about mnemonics and particularly Dale you've used this word body memory quite a lot mm. I'm just wondering about the difference between so when you work like a wall dra drawing on this kind of scale the drawing is scaled to the shape of the wall right like in the same way that your um, the Sydney piece is scaled to the institutional environment but a lot of your work also relies on the scale of your own physical yeah. um, body and also the bodies of your collaborators or yeah. co collective, um, sort of collective scaled physicality. So yeah. what is the difference between trying to, um, you know, activate a body memory that is your body and your, you know, particular community versus like a body of architecture? Is that a... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, definitely um, the painting at the Queen's and Art Gallery at this time is a lot higher it's a lot taller than some of the other wall paintings we've made because it, a lot of the, the, the body of the, the stencil work was, was, was blown by me standing on, on the ground. So my, the register of my breath is, has a band kind of like here and there's, it's always a conscious thing when I talk about my body or any body really around how this is framed anthropologically or culturally or socially, politically, but certainly my body does certain things and I can see the trace of that in the wall painting and the register. Um, and uh, whereas around the architecture is that, um, yeah, there's the opportunity to sort of blow that up and, and, and to blow, say, at Quag, the, the petroglyphs, the way they move up and across and there's the potential for them to move and up and beyond. And I'm starting to see the functions of elevation in architecture, particularly religious architecture, the functions of elevation and the functions of that climbing the wall or climbing uh, the, the environment and moving upwards or moving uh, in an expansive way. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to, to, to click onto these kinds of things as well. Does that go there? Right. Yeah. yeah, particularly that uh, that work in there. It, it's, it has it, um, it has it. It couldn't be made with fewer than two people, so it has to be at least me and my other person. And the 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 stencils that are used to make it, those those cartoons, the perforated sheets, they're very awkward scale. And at first, I thought that was just an annoying like failure of design on my part. <laughs> um, but um, because they're 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 really awkward for two people to handle, even yeah. But, but all of your images are awkward because you're handling the banners. Yeah, that's right. So then at a certain point I realised it was, it, was, it was not an accident because it's about a kind of stressed collective effort. Like the, the banner oh. marching, the banners were always they were for four, four people um, to carry and they're awkward for four people to manage. So it creates an awkward or exacerbated sense of a collective effort. And because you have to, it's different to a flag that way. Like a flag is usually for one person. But a banner involves you physically having to, to coordinate four people, which I was interested, always interesting for me as a kind of, in the way that it embodies this difficult effort that we make to hold and enact collective beliefs. And it's Whoa. a bit the same thing with this, that it, the awkwardness produces something visually because it would look, look very, very differently if it was just one person doing it on tiny little sheets of paper. It would, it's much more uncontrolled because of that, because it's two people wrestling with an awkward bit of paper. 
Um, but also, I mean, this is something we talked about coming here, that there's a, a pretty significant difference between the, the wall painting, for example, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and this wall drawing here of mine, is that there's a whole series of disconnections in the wall drawing. I mean, that, I mean I'm very lucky that here there were um, like five or six very skilled, wonderful people who helped me to make that wall drawing, but I don't have a, didn't have a connection to them. I explained the project to them. And we also, there's also a kind of repudiation or, or at least disconnection to the image which originates the work, which is that Manet painting, because I mean, that Manet, the, the whole process in a way dispels that, that, that image. And so there's a strange, at least an ambivalence towards that painting as a source, if not a kind of desire to efface it and to produce another kind of image. So there's a kind of structure of disconnection in there, which is, I think is what produces the work in, in a way, that, and it, it's part of its indeterminacy. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, for me... Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think that I, I would, I don't know how you feel about that, but I would relate that to also just having we have a different speak, the, the relationship to our own culture in relation to this place and its history is really right. quite different. So it's. Oh, far out. That's yeah. <laughs> Strongest differences. That's a, that's a lovely way to tie things together um, because, uh, how do I put it? If I know that a, if I know that a, Karawong, which is the word Karawong, Whanau or Karawong's name actually means not Sangoana. So if I may speak some Bidjara language very briefly, is that Garabarga, the name for Karawong in my grandfather's language, actually means not Sangoana. And that so the Karawong and the Sangoana are bound in their, in their, in their yeah. difference, but they're not opposing. Yeah. So the, the bird's name is not the lizard. So um, these are paradigms that we that we know deeply, and if we can bring it into this kind mm. of uh, constructive context mm. around mm. A, around a dialogue, yeah, mm. yeah, mm. great. So, um, does anyone have a short, small question? One question. Is everyone satisfied? Do you also leave room for randomness or randomness and spontaneity? Do you do that in the work that you were referring to in terms of making pattern? Certainly. Addition, or is there some randomness there as well? Certainly. The, um, I've not made a study of, a, of one of the wall paintings completely. There's no, there's no plans for the wall paintings. There's an idea of how I'd like it to flow across the space having an idea of the space and like to know how it would move across a surface, but certainly they've, everyone is made in the moment. And the original wall painting that I made in Linden in 2014, uh, I, I, I made a choice stepping off a ladder and a bowl of red ochre flew across the room and hit the wall. And now I own that as a, an element of the work because some red ochre was splashed against the wall and ran down the wall in the telling of a, of a massacre story. And so uh, before I quickly ran and wiped that off the wall, it's a matter of, oh, I'll take that, thank you. And um, I didn't cho choose it, but now it stays. So yeah, certainly randomness and uh, being open to how that functions, yeah.
Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all. Yeah.